Welcome and happy Friday. It's May 20th, 2016. This is a pre-recorded episode of Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Brad Rickman. I am here with Barbara Peterson, who's a contributor for our website, and Jaina Maleri and Kathleen LeGrave, who are editors on our website. And we are addressing this week the topic that the entire media universe has been addressing, which is the TSA and the weight and the lines. I guess maybe the first thing we could do, Barbara and Catherine, maybe if you guys could talk through exactly what has been going on, just recap for us um, what's been going on in the last week and a half. Well, what's going on is that it's been the lead story in the evening news, really, for the last couple of weeks, and certainly in the last week. It's it's just what's happened is the lines at certain big hub airports have gotten so bad that we have the spectacle of hundreds, if not thousands, of people missing their flights as a result. And that's despite the best efforts of both TSA and the airlines to say, get to the airport at least two hours in advance and three hours if you're flying internationally. Apparently, even if you do that, you risk missing your flight. The worst nightmares, you know, Chicago this week was sort of, you know, ground zero for the meltdown. And there were people sleeping on the floor of the airport because, you know, as you know, once you miss your flight, it's not that easy to get out on another one. And People said the lines were at times three hours long, and that's just unprecedented. I mean, there have been times when TSA has been overwhelmed, but I can't recall anything like this. And um, they've come up with some excuses or reasons for why this happened, but I frankly don't think it really adds up. I mean, basically what the TSA says is, well, you know, traffic is up and the number of screeners is down, and both those things are technically true, but... Air travel's up 8% over the last three years. That's not a huge amount, and it didn't happen overnight. And same with the screeners being down by 5,000 screeners overall out of, say, what used to be 47,000. It's now around 42,000 screeners. Yeah, that sort of explains it, except that the TSA has a lot of leeway in being able to move people around, you know, the different people around the field. Yeah, this is, I mean, what what are, so Chicago was one of the worst. What are some of the other places where things got really bad? Seattle, we had um, Atlanta. Atlanta, uh, Charlotte was had had big problems, right? And Denver. And one of the things I was curious about is why the disparity. I mean, yes, Chicago is clearly you know an incredibly busy airport. They're all busy airports, but why is it so much worse at some places than at others? Well, I think some of it has to do with the individual airport just not managing it well, and it may not even be their fault, but it just happens to be certain airports have, for whatever reason, they cannot seem to match the number of screeners with the you know, demand. And so this TSA itself doesn't do that? It's the airports that well, do that? It's a, yeah, and I don't know how much you want to get into this because it's very, you know. But, Let's but, nerd out. This yeah, is what yeah. we do. Well, it is kind of fascinating in a way because it's a sort of a case study of, I guess, bureaucracy run amok, you know, because it's this big, huge, centralized organization. And yet, it's really run by these little fiefdoms around the country. Each airport has its own TSA regional director, and they make a lot of the decisions. And do they work for the airport or do they work, like, what's the reporting structure there? Uh, they report to TSA headquarters in Washington. Have any of them been fired in the (laughs) wake of this? 
<laughs> no, it's, I'm serious because yeah. this is a huge image problem for the TSA. They've actually created new positions for, to, to, to sort of address this. Yeah. Well, I, I think some of this really calls into question whether or not this can exist in its present form. And, and, I, and I know Catherine has written something about that, too, about the, mm-hmm. you know, that air, big airports are starting to say, you know, wait, I think we need to reevaluate whether or not this structure works. In answer to your question just now, that yes, there was one that I'm aware of that was fired at Newark Airport. Because Newark. It, yeah, Newark has had repeated problems over the years, as you probably are aware. But, you know, more like screeners sleeping on the job uh, and okay. maybe screeners stealing from bags. And, you know, it's it, there's a whole range of the parade of horribles, you know, that, that we can associate with the TSA. Yeah. But right now... I don't think I've ever seen this anger on this kind of national scale. Well, there was a trending hashtag that kind of went viral last week. I think it was this weekend, the I hate the wait um, hashtag. You know, I don't know what the scale of that was, but it was it was on the news every night. If the news reports on Twitter, it's got to be huge, right? Because they otherwise don't care. Yeah, the spokeswoman for the airline group. So this was a website that was created May 6th from the industry group representing most of the largest carriers actually encouraging travelers to go to the site and say, take a picture of their long line and post it on social media and really direct it at the TSA, hoping to draw more attention to this issue. And it said that the site, I think, has received like 20,000 visits. And if you look, you know, if you follow that hashtag, um, I know we did a follow-up post and you can see that people are, are really using it and it's starting to gain traction, which is what the TSA does not want. There was also a video that went viral from Midway Airport, just Mm -hmm. somebody walking the line at how insane the line was. But it's interesting that the airlines themselves are, you know, encouraging people to complain about this. Did they sort of explain what their angle is on this? Are they feeling like they get blamed if they don't do this, Catherine? Not that they get blamed, but Barbara, you can probably, you know, and Jaina and Brad, you can all weigh in on this, but what we've seen is that all of these people that are missing flights, this is more of a problem for the airlines because then they have to rebook all of these people on different flights. Sure. We saw this in Chicago when 450 people or around that missed their flight for American. And then American said, okay, enough of this. We're going to start employing some of our own workers and having them, you know, give people bins and sort of direct them to take things out of their pockets, sort of anything we can do because it's so much more of a hassle for them to have to rebook all of these people and deal with, you know, be, sort of be on the receiving end probably of a lot of that anger. Well, and also expense. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but the, it must be terribly expensive for them. They just yeah. have a bunch of people they have to essentially put on a second flight for with no extra money. Those are seats they're going to lose. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. they can't charge them change fees because after all, it wasn't their fault. Right. And, um, you know, so they, they're really, yeah, the airlines are losing money, as you point out. And they're also, more importantly, really getting a black eye in this, too, because a lot of the anger is directed at them. Does the TSA, I don't know what the contract looks like between the airport, the TSA, the airlines. Is there any accountability on the TSA's part for this? Yeah, again, that's a great question because the short answer is no. It's, wow. it's it's a great game of, you know, pass the buck. And actually, we've written about that before, too. There's really no clearly defined sort of borders there between where does one entity's responsibility end and the others begin. And I think that... 
because we went with this model post 9-11 of having this big, you know, brand new agency. It was one of the first ones created from scratch since World War II or something. I mean, and it's huge. It's so different from the way it's done everywhere else in the world. And, you know, I wrote about that recently, too, about how why does it work better in, in Europe? Well, they've always had what... That is, story is five things the TSA could learn from other countries, which is on the site. Find it on the site, ladies and gentlemen. And it's really interesting because what they do over there is each major airport has its sort of own airport authority, and they handle everything, including security. That's part of their portfolio. And that was taken away from the U.S. airlines after 9-11. And, and, you know, we can all understand the reasons why. And yet it's sort of been proven year after year that the other way works better because an airport really is the best in the best position to see. They know how many flights leave. They know what the volume is going to be. That's their business to know that. And, you know, what they do is they generally contract out to private security firms and that gives them more flexibility. They can adjust, you know, staffing. They can do the training right there. One of the things that TSA did recently, it got a little bit of attention, but I think this is really actually important, is that the TSA, in its great wisdom, decided that they wanted to train all the screeners, no matter where they're going to be working around the country, in the same place. So they opened up this training center in Georgia. So instead of training in your own hometown where you're going to be working and, you know, go there, you have to spend three weeks down in Georgia. Now... Maybe they had a good reason for that, but apparently that's been a real problem for them. I right. mean, they're, they're having a hard enough time, you know, cranking out the new hires as it is. And, you know, again, it's just one of these ideas that somebody dreamed up in Washington. Um, I should probably reveal, you know, full disclosure here that I actually worked as a screener for an article for Con Inez Traveler. Did you? Yeah. And that was called My Life as a Screener. Uh, and and it, came, it's, it came out a while ago. It was 2007. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I got hired as a part-time screener at LaGuardia Airport. and um, Were you I, undercover? Yes and no. I mean, I was undercover in the sense that I didn't say, oh, yeah, I'm coming in to write an article. But I never lied about who I was. I filled out the application. Um, and as a, as a freelancer and a writer, I, you know, I, they completely were uninterested in what I did before I got to TSA. Wow. It was really remarkable. That's astonishing. And only one of my coworkers sort of figured out or guessed, they guessed that I maybe was it. But I, I worked there. I worked at TSA for three months. And... Um, the article still, you can find it out there, too, in the Internet. But, um, yeah, I, I guess what I was going to say is, unfortunately, what I've seen since I worked there is, if anything, it's gotten to be even more of a giant, cumbersome bureaucracy that can't seem to do anything right. It's just that they don't have an ability to react fast enough to reallocate people in order to assess. But if they do have a regional director and they do have somebody who's working with the airport, how do they not have visibility into the flow through that airport? Why does that person not able to work with the airport to understand what the needs are and then get reallocations from Washington? Is Washington just not listening to those people or do we know where the breakdown is there? Are those people just bad? Some of them are bad. Is that the answer? Some of them just aren't good at their jobs? Well, I think there's there tends to be, you know, a lot of that dead wood that you would find anywhere. But I don't know if that's really what the problem is. I think that it's just, again, anytime they want to change anything or do anything, it has to go through various levels of approvals and it's got to go through Washington. And, and yes, they can bring new screeners in, but apparently they've had a lot of difficulty in 
being able to respond in a nimble fashion to big changes in demand or any change in demand, really. I mean, it's very structured. And I'm not sure it really ultimately is a matter of you know, the competence or incompetence of the various people there. I think it's it's probably just a broken model. Yeah. But is this something that happened suddenly? Certainly it hit the news suddenly, right? Like this is something that, yes, every now and then, particularly during holiday seasons, there will be complaints about lines and warnings about lines. But it feels to me like in the last two weeks, there's just been this explosion. And it, it, it it's not like it came out of nowhere, but suddenly it got much, much worse at some of these places. Is that just perception? Is that just the media started paying attention for some reason? Or like, has this been brewing for a long time and close to this and it just somehow hit a tipping point? Catherine, you know more about this, but I think aren't there sort of these factors that are creating a perfect storm and part of it is that, you know, it's cheaper to fly Mm -hmm. than it has been in many years. And so you just have actually more bodies to get through these airports in a lot of instances. I think perfect storm is a good way to put it. You know, you've got more people flying. Summer airfares have dropped nearly 13% from last year. They're, you know, at an all-time low, not an all-time low, but in the past seven years. And we've got, you know, tighter security measures because of some incidents we've seen. You know, we saw Brussels, I think, which really shook people up and, and led to stricter airport security measures that the TSA hasn't really disclosed, but they have said, yes, you know, we're, we're clamping down and we're being significantly more thorough in certain areas. Obviously, they're not going to release those specifics, but they have said that that's what they're doing. Right. I think it's still interesting, though. I just flew just last week. I was in Europe for a few days and having covered a lot of this in the last few weeks, I was really nervous, particularly because I had a connection in Amsterdam that was 50 minutes And so, you know, having covered all of this, I was pretty convinced that there was no way that I was going to make my connection. And then getting to Amsterdam, it just was so much more sort of seamless. And there was someone waiting right when everyone got off the plane to ask where everybody was going and to direct people immediately. And then once you got in the line to go through customs, there were people, there was airport staff also sort of patrolling the line and checking in with people and asking you know, where are you going next? And then pulling people out of the line, bumping them to the front. No one was complaining about it, I think, because it was, you know, just it all was making sense. And I was worried. But then when I asked, you know, I said, I have about 40 minutes to make it to my connection. And the woman who I spoke to immediately said, oh, you'll you'll be absolutely fine. And just that was sort of enough to then it's just made me realize if, you know, the line slowed way down or something. And I did need to be bumped up there were people right there who I could. And were they airline people or were they airport people? They were airport people. Okay. Yeah. So they just sort of flood the zone with people to help out basically yeah. and, and it help was, organize things. Yes. And seemed to understand that there was the potential that people were going to be like tight on time. And those people just immediately, like I said, you have to sort of go ahead. The whole process was pretty smooth. And then on the return flight, again, flying through Amsterdam, I even, there was sort of an extra step, which I had never had to do, where everyone was asked a series of questions just basically about my luggage and was it in my possession and what did I have in it and did anybody give me anything and did I, you know, sort of those questions. But even that was happened really quickly. The guy who asked me the questions was like, you know, so charming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was really nice. And handsome, I'm And sure. handsome. It was really nice to talk yes. to him. Um So even with that sort of added step, I got through, you know, both times with no issue. So it does really, I mean, just even, fine, that's a very, you know, like 
limited experience, but it seemed to me like, you know, in Amsterdam at the airport, they were sort of handling things in the right way. Barbara, what are the five things that the TSA could learn from other countries since we're on that Topic. Yes. Well, no, I found Jane's story is really interesting because I was just in Europe and transited, I guess, three or four airports. And some of them just really stood out as just being a model of efficiency. But but it's not sort of some impenetrable sort of secret. They've got. It's, it's it's not rocket science face. It's something they could, you know, that like what you were describing, just really making it work efficiently, having people, real human beings there to help you through. And I, I think that's one of the things we seem to have a resistance to here is just having someone there purely for the reason of helping people get through and understand. So just anyway, clarifying yes, process. Yes. Right. So one of the first things I said we could do, which I saw all over Europe, is get really good wait time information and get it in real time. And you know, the Oslo airport actually has a webcam there posted in the security area. And they you you can log onto your computer here if you care to and look at the line at Oslo. And now it's very rarely longer than five minutes, but um you know wow, it's wait, five minutes? <laughs> In a, in a security line? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and I went through also several times. And I went through once where there was sort of a peak afternoon hour, you know, rush hour kind of. Thing. And even then, it was really fast moving. But I find it really incomprehensible that we can't do that here. Now, the TSA has this app, and you can go download it. It's called My TSA, and you can post your wait time. And they were trying to make this takeoff. But as Catherine was pointing out, the other thing that's really taken off is the I hate the lines or I hate the wait. But, but what you can do if you feel like it is you can post your wait time, and then other people can see it. However, I find it very interesting that they give you the little categories like 0 to 10 minutes, 11 to 20 minutes. The longest wait that they will acknowledge that you can post is 31 minutes oh, plus. Come on. Yeah. So if you're on one of those three hour lines, you can only say it's 31 minutes plus. So this is trying to be transparent and completely control the narrative at the same time. Yeah. And, and it's Fake just not. Transparency. It, so that app is kind of not really helping that much. And, and frankly, it doesn't seem to be used very much. So what I think the European airports do, which is great, is they have these, you know, they, they post the times, they make it very transparent when you, you know, you can find it out in advance. They give you historic wait times, which we could do here easily, yeah. which which they don't do. And now this may seem incredibly trivial, but believe it or not, this really backs things up. Is here, you know those wonderful plastic bins that, that we have, you know, that you put all your stuff in? At the end, when you go through, they just start piling up. Yeah. And guess whose job it is to move them? The, yes. The, the TSA workers. Yeah, who are already the overwhelmed. Inspectors. Yeah, so they have to like pull them off and, you know, when they should they be... They need a bar back. <laughs> And so here's what they do in Europe. They have these automatic bin, you know, machines and, and they just immediately, you know, go into the, you know, carousel and then come back at the other end. Right, you know? It's like a bowling alley. Yeah. Pre- yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I did a story on that several years ago for Condé Nast, I actually went down one day and worked as a volunteer bin pusher at, at Dulles Airport because they had figured out this is a problem. OK, so give them credit for that. However, after I wrote that story, I got all this mail from people over in Europe saying, you know, you idiots, basically, in the U.S., we've been, we figured this out years ago. Why didn't you, you know, just get these machines? Now, of course, they cost money, and, and if you're going to do it for the entire U.S., that would be, a, yes, a big change. But it would, I think, really help a lot. I mean, so, yeah. it's, again, it's just one of those things. But, again, if they regionalized it, right, like the, the reason why it's not a huge deal in Europe is because countries in Europe are smaller and don't have as much scale. 
And so the expense is confined. Well, they could do the same thing in the United States. We could just say it's a regional or an airport or a state expense or something, and then you keep the scale small in an individual yeah. level with maybe some federal support for it or something like that. And we should also point out that the, the, all these problems we're talking about are really the problems at, like, the, say, the largest 20 or 30 airports. It's, it's you know, so that's where they should be focusing their money on. So the other things that I wrote about were liquids, you know, because that's another thing that keeps on holding up these lines. And, and then in Europe, they are gradually phasing out these liquids requirements, and they've got the technology to do that. So we can definitely learn from that. And then the other thing is their version of, of TSA PreCheck, which we, we can talk about as well, but they are really all over that. They are pushing, literally pushing people into it. If you make a reservation, say, on Norwegian Airlines, you can buy your way, you know, into a PreCheck line. You pay, you know, a nominal fee. They're really, really pushing that because they see how well it works. And they also have these people posted there. I went through what they call the fast track lane in Oslo. And they are, you know, if you start to slow down, you're going to be like, you know, you will get in trouble. They are like pushing you through and, okay, do this, do that. And if you start to act a little like you're clueless or something, which which we see all the time here, there will be somebody there who will very gently but, you know, forcefully get you to move on. Here, put your things there. You know, there, it's, it's, it has to be everything. It has to be the human element. You know, you have to have people there who can actually interact with people. And then you have to have the technology. It speaks to the process itself, which is something that every now and then there's a bit of debate about, which is the process feels very, very antiquated to me just as a consumer going through that line. I sort of every time I do it, I feel like, really, I have to pull all of these things out of my bag. I have to put them in bins. I have to separate them. I have to take off my shoes. I have to take off my belt. I have to take off my watch and my glasses and everything else. And I just find myself wondering... Can we really be, can this all be really as unsophisticated as it feels? And then every so often you hear about, you know, other countries. Israel is always the example that gets cited where the paradigm is different and the approach is different. And so the focus is less on all of these sort of tedious, let's remove every potential, you know, barrier to the x-ray or whatever it is. And let's focus on trying to assess character and motivation and, you know, intent and all of these things that are much more difficult but don't require all of this process, in, you know, around the quotidian, you know, accoutrement of life, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if this has provoked any revival of that discussion that you guys have seen. They've played around with a lot of these ideas. In fact, when I was working there, you know, whenever that was, a long time ago, in 2006 and 2007, they, they started that behavioral detection program. And I think it was their sort of, I'd call it Israeli security light, you know, because, I mean, really, it, they took a few people who they thought, you know, one of, in fact, a few of them were former New York City cops and said, okay, you know, we're going to give you a little extra training and, you know, and you're going to be there and you're going to look at people and you're going to say, and, you know, in, in theory, it should work, but again, Israel is such a different, you know, place. I mean, it's it's a small country. It's basically got one big international airport. It's a country that's basically at war, you know, you know, can 
pretty much consistently throughout its history. And they do a great job, but if you really want to scale that— It doesn't that, scale. The, yeah, yeah, precise, it doesn't yeah, scale. Yeah. You can't, and it also—the the training is so specialized and the knowledge base is so deep that you just can't get— thousands and thousands of people to do it. Is that, and, that the idea? Exactly. And every time TSA tries to do something like that, they spend, end up spending a huge amount of money on it. Then they get hauled before Congress because it, it was a disaster. And that's exactly what happened with this program. The acronym which is SPOT, which I love, and but I couldn't tell you what it stands for. But it, you know, they it that is considered to be yet another big debacle. And I'd say what I'd say also is that the TSA is always reacting to the last incident, whatever it was. So whatever they're doing now, it's based on something that happened a year. Doesn't that worry us? Yeah. That worries me. I feel like New York City had this response to September 11th that was comprehensive and proactive, even certainly potentially invasive. But I also feel like their response was we need to be out in front of this problem. We need to be trying to figure out things before they actually happen, before they become a problem. And I feel like the TSA is the opposite of that. It's just like they learn after something has happened. Right, that's that, why we have to take off our shoes now. Yeah, I mean, and it just it just feels like that's not good enough. Like, forget right. about the lines. Forget about the inconvenience and all of the antiquated weirdness of the process. It just doesn't feel smart enough to me to yeah, actually make me feel safe. Right. I think the fact that they have to be reactive indicates that things continue to go wrong and that they need to then pivot and come up with new safety measures, which, yeah, I think it's kind of terrifying. I also think I've noticed in the U.S. it felt more sort of uniform where you knew when you got there you were going to have to do all of those things. And now, you know, in different airports you're having the experience where, oh, maybe you don't have to take off your shoes. Maybe you don't have to take off your belt here. Maybe you can leave your laptop in your bag here. And that almost seems to be creating more of a bottleneck because then you have someone who's got like one shoe on and one shoe off and then finds out, oh, no, you don't have to take them on. So then that person stops puts everything back on or they have their laptop halfway out, put it back away. And so it's sort of is like... Yeah, I've even had that experience at the same airport where if I go through with my kid, I don't know exactly... This is the thing. I don't even know what the difference was. But one time I went through and I was... Maybe I was by myself. I didn't have to take my laptop out. And I was allowed to walk through... You know, the, I, I went into the big scanner where you raise your yeah. arms and whatever. Another time I went through the small scanner and the rules were different. And it was very confusing as to why the rules were different and whether that was a change or whether it was just one TSA worker letting me slide, you know, right. whimsical or whatever. I feel like they're always sort of testing and trying to figure it out. And we are all having to be the guinea pigs, which it I mean, keeps you on your toes. Yes. And if it results ultimately in some sort of more streamlined process, that's great. But in the meantime, I feel like, you know, it's just maybe just slowing us all down a little bit more when you don't know what to expect. Because, you know, like I, I feel like when I go to the airport, I have this certain idea that I have to do this and this and this and this in order to get through security quickly. And when that is a moving target, then, you know, <laughs> then there's no way to streamline. Yeah. So can we talk about what kind of proposed solutions to this have come up since it became a crisis in the last couple of weeks? Right. So on Friday, the TSA finally decided to test this, and they released a sort of 10-point plan, which they've actually been criticized for, sort of going back to your earlier points. People are saying, well, you're just responding to the wait times, um, and you're not actually solving the problem, which is that, you know, regional directors should be able to make these decisions and all that stuff. Again, the 10 points include, like, asking airlines for help. They want to hire more TSA workers. I think the number is 
nearly 770, I think, by June 15th. They're going to move more canine teams to screen passengers, and they're going to keep working with airlines to encourage carry-on luggage and all this stuff. To me, it seems like a lot of general language. Barbara, what do you think? Yes, I agree. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say you're hiring 700, and that sounds like a lot. But then when you think they're talking about nationwide, and all those people have to yeah. go through training. And the other thing they're not talking about is the high attrition rates. I mean, I've been hearing reports that, you know, there are more than 100 people leaving every week. I mean, I, I every feel, week. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there, there is the TSA administrator admitted that he said that well, not by week, but he said one-fourth of part-time TSA workforce and 9% of full-time officers leave every year. Wow. A hard retention rate, I think. Yeah, that's incredible. Are they just, is the TSA just underfunded? Is this a congressional problem? Like, do we just need to give them more money? Uh, well, I, that might help. I mean, that, that wouldn't hurt. But I do think that the bigger question is how they're using it. And, and again, it gets back to that whole thing of them being this, you know, really kind of constrained by a lot of these just bureaucratic rules that they've got to abide by. But yes, as Catherine pointed out, they have said they're going to do something. And, and you know, look, let's hope it'll at least bring some relief. But what I'm more concerned about is where are these people going to be deployed? Are they also going to look at other things that don't involve hiring a lot of people? And airlines have actually offered. I was I was at a meeting at Delta a couple of weeks ago, and they're certainly dealing with this Atlanta. And they've offered to lend them their employees. I mean, their employees would basically be volunteers working at the airports to help with things like those annoying bins piling up, and to help you know stand there, post there, help people. You know, just as Jana was describing before about being in Europe. You know, the, getting people out of the line who were about to miss their flight, getting them to the front of the line, just basic stuff like that that you don't need a trained you know TSA. And how about the airports themselves? Have they stepped up to offer anything here? Not that, as far as I'm aware of, that they've come up, except, well, you know, of course, Port Authority, which runs the, the three major New York airports, that they've talked about firing TSA effectively. What they could do is they could apply to replace the TSA with a private security screening firm. And that is permissible under the law. And that was actually a program that had great promise, I'd say about 10 years ago when they first started this. The idea was that certain airports could apply to opt out, as they put it. They could hire private screening, and then that would give TSA a good way of measuring the difference and seeing if there are any efficiencies and what both sides could learn from the other. So, But the problem is, as it went on and it became clear that the TSA is very reluctant to let airports bail out. You know, it's not too hard to see why. I mean, it doesn't look so good for them if a lot of airports are, are trying to, Opting you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. effectively yeah. kicking them out. Because, yeah. uh, but, um, uh, but again, I mean, with the Port Authority and now Atlanta also saying that no, we want to, we want to replace TSA. I, that's really going to ratchet up the pressure on them. I think. Yeah. So back in February the TSA created a new senior executive position, the chief of operations, and appointed this guy, Gary Rassicott. It does not seem like that was particularly effective. Is there anything else that the TSA is doing other than, you know, sort of bringing on 700 more people? Like, what is their answer to this structurally? Are they looking at any kind of paradigm shift is anybody going to enforce force them into a paradigm shift? Or is it just too soon? I mean, it doesn't feel like it should be too soon, given that these things have been happening for years. But maybe it is too soon. Maybe the public outcry has only recently reached a point at which they, it can't be ignored. 
Well, I, I think they really do want the TSA to boost membership and pre-check because that's really fallen way, way below expectations. I mean, I mean, they, they wanted 25 million people in that program and it's more like 7 million. And that includes the other expedited programs like Global Entry and, you know, there's several others like that. So they are talking about hiring some private sector firms, actually marketing firms to just get the word out and just go out and pull people out of line saying, here, sign up, you know. So I don't know how effective that's going to be because they have delayed issuing those contracts for repeatedly over the last couple of years. I mean, this is not a brand new idea. So we'll see. And another issue with that is that, you know, there's reporting that, okay, now all these people are applying for pre-check, you know, in the wake of these lines, but they're applying and they're told that the nearest appointment to get approved for pre-check is 40 days away. You know, because then there's the backup with applying for pre-check because, you know, you have to make an appointment. You can walk in, but I think most people prefer to make an appointment. I've also heard a lot of people complaining, including, you know, people who've been on the podcast like Mark and uh, other people, that pre-check lines are getting, in some locations, are getting as long as the regular lines because there are so many people. I mean, maybe that just has to do with there are higher concentrations of pre-check in certain areas and and it's not a, a thing that's true across the board, but it does feel like you just sort of, yes, the process itself is a little faster, but you're just moving people from one line to the other line. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of the consumer, what would we advise people? How would we advise, advise people to plan for this and think about this as we get into the summer travel season where airports are busier than at any other time of the year other than the holidays? I'm someone who gets to the airport. <laughs> between three and four hours early just because that's how I... For international or domestic? For it, all of it. Really? <laughs> yes. Because then I just know that I'm there and I don't have to... I'm already, you know, I've talked about this a lot. I'm a very nervous flyer. I'm not, you know, I, I traveling sometimes is tricky for me. So I feel like if I can be... If I can knock one anxiety off my plate, like, why not? And then I'll just be anxious about all of the other things, like the, everything that could go wrong on my flight. But then, you know, I'm at least in the airport and I don't have to worry about it. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of airport, you know, not every airport, but so many airports have gotten better. They have better food options. Some of them have really good shopping <laughs> options. So I sort of think of it as like, okay, I'm here and now I can sort of like browse the Muji store for a little bit longer than I would otherwise. Catherine, it sounds like relief is not coming anytime soon from the official sources. I don't know whether Congress has started to wake up and take notice of this, and that's not exactly encouraging, even if they have. But I mean, are, are there are there steps people can take? Join PreCheck. Start now if your trip is more than forty days away. You know what 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 are the things that we would advise people? I'm of the opinion that joining PreCheck or Global Entry, which does have PreCheck built in and in some facets is a good thing. Um, a lot of credit cards actually have that feature built in, whether or not they'll say, we'll reimburse you for pre-check or global entry, or they say, you know, you have a $300 travel credit that you can use, and that also applies for global entry. So I would look into that and see, you know, if you have a travel credit card, if you travel often, um, consider getting one of those because it's, it's a nice built-in feature. Yes, and also some airlines are doing, you know, what 
some of the European airlines have been doing for a while too, which um, is letting you just buy, you know, and, uh, effectively buy your way into PreCheck. I mean, they they offer that option on their website. It's like yet another ancillary service, you know, that we you know are used to being offered. But this one, I would say, if you can't wait, or you you know, if you've applied for TSA PreCheck, but you know, as, as Catherine pointed, you don't know how long it's going to take for them to process it. Go ahead and do that when you make your reservation. And you'll be sure of getting, you know, at least a little bit further up on the line. And Barbara, you actually did a story for us back in April that pointed out that it's, if you're in Europe and you're moving about, it's quicker to travel by train yes. than to fly. Well, yes. If I wonder you think- if that's true sometimes domestically. <laughs> Oh, on short flights, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you think now they're telling you three hours, you know, so three hours and then if your flight's only one hour and you're going, you know, say 250 miles or 300 If you're going New York, Washington, if you're in New York, Boston, if you're going, you know, I mean, by the time you add up all the time you would spend, um, it seems like it might actually be quicker to just get on the Acela and hop in your car. Yeah. Or drive, yeah. That's another thing we've been covering, and I think we were covering it today, right? Like the gas prices are getting, are going to be cheaper than ever. Not, not that you know. I suppose it's probably a equal measure in terms of the global uh, environmental impact. But all right. So, any other thoughts that we can give to people before we break about the lines? Bring a nice pair of headphones and some music to listen to, and try to chill. Or out. listen to. Uh the, the podcast. Pod- listen to the <laughs> travelogue, the, the podcast while you're in line. And I would also check the airport that you plan on traveling to. You know, different airlines, or, or sorry, different airports have been releasing different airtimes. I would check that. Social media is always good to check and see what the lines are looking like, you know, maybe the day before you travel, just because we can't always sort of, I don't know, trust those uh, official reports that we're getting about the time, I guess. I think more information is better. Sort of casting your net wide and seeing what the times are looking like is helpful. We need ways for airports, <laughs> right? So that people could yeah. not, not run by the TSA, so that people could actually, you know, crowdsource uh, wait times. Yeah, well, that I think we should just all mount a campaign for that. You know, to, to get no to get the you know just sort of a killer Kickstarter. Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. But it is true. In in you know, knowledge really is power in this case. And also, you can game it a little bit if you have some flexibility. There are a couple of websites. I think one called What's Busy or something that will give you historic times. So you can so you can pretty much figure out that if you fly on a Tuesday, say at eleven a.m., you know maybe that's not your preferred time, but, you know, you're not going to stand on those horrendous lines. So if you have any flexibility, I'd say, you know, take advantage of that. And, and yes, and you can also look into flying at alternate airports. You know, there's just, you know, other ways you can avoid the pain, but a lot of times you can't avoid going through Atlanta. You know, that's just one of those facts of life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you're flying, some routes, you just can't avoid it. Okay. Well, that will do it for this week. Thank you so much for coming in, Barbara. Catherine, thank you you for calling in. Catherine is Mm -hmm. laid up with a sports injury. I don't know how that (laughs) happens to travel editors, but I guess people have to do other things than travel and write about travel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Um, You can find it on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud and wherever fine podcasts are distributed. You can also visit us. You should visit us at cntraveler.com. We are Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. 
And Jaina, uh, why don't you tell us where the folk can find you? You can find me on Instagram at JWMalary and on Snapchat at Jaina Malary. And Barbara, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm at, at Peterson B on Twitter. And Catherine? And I'm at KJ LeGrave on Twitter. On the Twitter. I'm at Bradrick, and that's it for us this week. Thanks, and have a great weekend, everyone. 